Would you open up your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 14? If you're following us at home, uh, we're picking up, well, wherever you are, we're picking up right in verse 1. 1 Corinthians 14. We've been looking at this section of Corinthians as we talk about the spiritual gifts in the context of our devoted series. This is a series where we're trying to understand and live out what it means to be a church according to God's word in his New Testament. And for two chapters in Corinthians 12 and 13, we've been seeing Paul try to help this church in Corinth move away from a focus on spiritual gifts that is unhealthy and help them, will bring them to a place of health. And if you remember the last couple of weeks, we've, we've looked at Paul interrupting this study, essentially this discussion on spiritual gifts. And in the last two weeks, we've been looking at how he just stops everything and goes into this long discourse on the greatness of love as the purpose and the motive for spiritual gifts and, and how he, he brings this now. And now we're going to see that he brings this idea of love to bear in the gathered church in specific application for a meeting just like ours today. So what he's going to say today is all about what should be happening and what should not be happening on a Sunday morning. It doesn't tell us everything. It doesn't talk about the Lord's Supper. It doesn't talk about the preaching and teaching of God's word specifically like he does in other places in Timothy. But everything he will talk about is specifically applicable to our gathering this morning. And that's why we're studying in our Devoted series, because this is such an important issue. And so let's start. We're going to start uh, at the very beginning of this chapter, and we'll take it piece by piece. So I'll stop along the way to explain some things and, um, and hopefully help us see what God would want us to understand about our gatherings through his word. Starting in 14.1, Paul says, picking up where he just left off, pursue love. And earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. This church in Corinth was fascinated with the gift of tongues. It, an indication from this text from the beginning of 12 through now, is that they place special attention and special weight and gravitas on those specific people who actually had this gift. Not everyone has it, Paul says, but those who did have it, they were fascinated with it. And they used this gift in their Sunday meetings. And Paul says this is a problem. He didn't deny this was a real gift. He doesn't slander the gift of tongues. He defines it. He explains it throughout this chapter as a real gift as he did before in 12 and 13. It's just, he says, not a gift useful for the gathered church unless someone can interpret. 
Tongues, he explains, is a kind of spiritual language, and we'll see this in the chapter, given by the Holy Spirit to the person who has the gift to speak to God. God-empowered praising and blessing on God. It includes praising and thanksgiving and prayer. We'll see that. But the speaker doesn't even know what's being spoken to God. And unless someone can interpret, then no one can understand what the speaker is saying, and therefore no one can be helped. However, when someone's bringing prophecy, that is something understandable, and we'll, we'll, we'll define this and explain this more as we go at the, towards the back end of this message, but when someone brings prophecy, that is words prompted by the Holy Spirit that are discernible and understandable, then people can be built up. And the flow of Paul's argument here is very simple. It's that any edifying and spirit-led or equipped words are much better than unintelligible words. Verse 6, Now, brothers, if I come to you, Paul says, speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or, or teaching? If, if even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is being played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? In other words, music that doesn't have different notes isn't music. And if a bugle is being used for soldiers to call them to attention and the, the bugle doesn't distinguish itself, it doesn't announce itself in ways they can understand, what's the point? Verse 9, so with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what's being said? For you will be speaking into air. He uses another analogy. There are doubtless many different languages in the world. None is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you're, you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Paul says, you, you all want so much to see the Holy Spirit at work among you. Good, so do I, he says. But then ask for and seek the real work he wants to do when you're together to build each other up. So you see this massive emphasis from 12 through 13 through 14 in these chapters. Gifts of the Holy Spirit are given not so we can wow each other and impress each other and titillate each other and fascinate each other, but so that we would be able to love one another and serve one another. And, and there's many gifts outside of the Sunday gathered. Administration, helps, hospitality. So just because he doesn't mention those today, don't think they don't count. He's got a specific context of the Sunday meeting in mind. And he says, when the people of God are together on a Sunday morning or in fellowship around the Son of God, then the Spirit of God eagerly desires to see the heart of God reflected in the people of God. And what's the heart of God? The heart of God is the heart of a servant. And so that's what gifts are to do. They equip so that we can serve one another. And that's the problem with tongues and the gathered assembly. It's not that it's fake or not for today. It isn't fake, Paul says. It is for today. It's just uniquely a serve-yourself gift. And if it can't be interpreted, Paul will say later in this chapter, keep it between you and God in private devotions. Verse 13, 
Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. In other words, if you're going to do it, only do it if you can interpret it in the public gathering. If you're going to bring it to a Sunday morning or to a care group, then pray that you can interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. This is, this is fascinating. Listen to this. If I pray in a tongue, verse 14, my spirit prays. It does, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. This is fascinating and it's very strange. But this is in the Bible. This is the word of God telling us that tongues erupts from a place in our spirit that is indiscernible to our mind. So he says, I, I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. He's saying my mind doesn't know what I'm saying. This is a fascinating, mysterious, and miraculous thing. And it is totally useless to the gathered church and quite unimpressive and unimportant to God. Because it can't build anybody else up. John Bloom says, The spiritual gifts are not fireworks for our oohs and ahs. They're mainly given to extend love and the grace of God to others. And Paul doesn't mean to denigrate tongues, but to highlight what's greater, the ability to love through intelligible communication. Verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. And obviously he means mostly in his private devotions. He enjoys this gift. He uses this gift where he prays with his spirit, but his mind doesn't know what he's doing. Something deep inside him is edified. But he's not going to bring it to you on a Sunday morning. He says in 19, Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind. Jesus is the Lord. Hallelujah. <laughs> then 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be like children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. And now Paul quotes the Old Testament to get his point across in a rather stark way. He says something devastating, devastating for the tongue-obsessed and infatuated church. Verse 21. In the law it is written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. Follow me here. This is brilliant and a little hard to grasp. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I, that's the Lord, speak to this people. And even they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Verse 22, thus tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. What Paul is explaining here is that with the gift of tongues, as we said, someone prays and praises God. It's directed to God in a language they don't understand, but God does understand the language. It blesses him. But in the Old Testament, when God speaks to a people and those people cannot understand him, it only confirms their separation from God. It's not a sign of blessing or favor. It's a sign of his judgment when God speaks and people do not understand him in the Old Testament. 
in this prophecy. So to speak a tongue, not to God, who understands everything, but to people when they can't understand it, is in keeping with this idea of judging them, confirming that God has separated himself and hidden himself from them. That's why he says in verse 22, tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers that they will not understand me. But in Christ Jesus, God is not seeking to hide himself from people but to reveal himself. So coming to a church gathering and not being able to actually hear and understand God's heart is a repudiation of his purposes in the gospel to draw near to us and to restore us to close relationship with him. Nick and Nika, there's so many parallels to what you guys are doing. I mean, it's just screaming out God's saying, it's so great that this is the morning you came. I want intelligible words spoken to the unbeliever. And you're making that happen and praise God for you. Verse 23, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your mind? Paul says, listen, those who aren't believers and don't grasp this gift, it's, it's just plain upsetting to them. It's strange. It's weird. The New Living Translation says, won't they say, you people are crazy? He's saying, yes, they will. And he loved this gift. So the church has an inner mission, an inner inside mission to build up itself, to build up one to another. But it has an outer mission to proclaim Christ and draw men and women to him in repentance. And if someone comes to our church or any church, Paul says, who needs Christ, and all they encounter is strange charismatic manifestations that don't clearly communicate God's heart, it might freak them out. It might be weird and titillatingly spiritually fascinating. But if it's undiscernible, all it does is upset them and bring disrepute to Christ. I talked last week about these videos I'd seen of, of folks on floors in their church surroundings. And they're, they're laying on the floor and they're shaking as if in crisis or an epilepsy. And preachers screaming over them. And they were all proclaiming, this is the Holy Spirit among us. And what do people say in the comments? They say, this is madness. This is madness. They mock the church. They mock God for this. And most certainly, I believe it is madness. My sense is that's not even of God, what I was seeing in those videos. <laughs> but see, what Paul is saying is the tongues can be of God. An unbeliever can walk into a meeting, and someone who has control over that gift can use that gift and if there's no interpretation, Paul says, they will also say, this is madness. What are you doing? Verse 24, he says, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Now, I've looked at this for a long time. Folks, I'll be honest with you. I don't know exactly what Paul is talking about here. There's, there's two general ideas. Wayne Grudem talks about one idea, which is that he knows of a church service in a Baptist church that didn't believe in the gifts. And someone, the pastor or preacher, they, they got up and they said, I, I really believe that there is a person here who has decided to leave their wife this morning and you're here and you've decided to leave your wife 
And God says to you, don't go. Return to her and, and come to me for help for your marriage. And a guy said, that was me. He went back to his wife. The marriage was restored. Famous story I've shared about Charles Spurgeon, right? Spurgeon's this great preacher of God's word, a great expositor of scripture. And he says in one of his meetings, someone here stole clear gloves. God just told me. I mean, I'm not quoting verbatim, but you know, he just is convinced someone here stole a pair of gloves. God says, turn to me. And you know, it's just this classic story because there's so few of those with Spurgeon and he wasn't caught up in fantastic, you know, sensational stories. And, and so that's one scenario. The other scenario is that people are just broadly and biblically revealing God's heart as they share like we did today with Nathan and with Kim and with Pat and in our song with Rob, that, that God's spirit is working through the truth proclaimed about his holiness and his goodness and that God is convicting through that and he is bringing an unbeliever to faith through that process. And I think both things are real and both things happen. And I've seen, I've seen, certainly I'm more familiar with the second one happening, though I've seen the first one happening. Martin Lloyd-Jones talks about a, a medium, a spiritist, coming to a church in England. And she was a spiritist. She was committed to talking with things and beings that she thought were angels and probably dead spirits. But she didn't know this, but they were demons. And she came to church one day, Joan says, and by chance, she decided to walk in. And as she sat and listened, the Holy Spirit worked through what was being said. And she said she could tell. It's a fascinating quote. She says, I'm not getting it right, but essentially she says, I could tell there was power here in this place. And I could tell because I'm familiar with spiritual power. And she said, I I felt that same sense that there is power active here through what I was experiencing and witnessing and hearing. But I could tell that it was a clean power and a good power. And she converted and came to Christ. So Paul says, the unbeliever walks in when God is being revealed through his truth. When God is being seen, whether it's specific truth, you're leaving your wife, or it's more broad truth, God is holy and points death for all and then gives an account in judgment and turn to Christ through the Holy Spirit. Well, that's the message they ultimately need and they have to have. And God works through the Holy Spirit to convert that sinner to Christ. And Paul says, they say, God is among you. Something happens in their hearts when they come and they say, God is here. He's among you. He's real. And so Paul says, don't focus on those gifts which do not reveal God to one another and to the lost, but focus on those that actually communicate him to one another, his glory in his heart. Verse 26, what then, brothers, when you come together, when you all come together, brothers and sisters, this is a generic pronoun here, confident. When you all come together, each one has a hymn, has a lesson, has a revelation, has a tongue, or an interpretation. If you're going to bring the tongue, you're going to bring an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. And now now we see something extraordinary here. Extraordinary to me, anyway. We see this picture of this church equipped by the Spirit of God to reveal God's heart from one to another 
member to member in intelligible words that the Holy Spirit uses to nourish and love and care and build up his people. Just like we experienced this morning, I pray for many of you. Now, I want to focus to sort of land this plane on on two principles through two phrases in this whole passage. Look at verse 25. He will worship God and declare that God is really among you. God is really among you. I want to focus on that phrase. Do you know what church is? Do you know what a church is? It's not a building. It's not a parking lot. It's not a meeting time. It's not an event. A church is the home of the living God. A church is the people about whom God says, I am among them. I am here with them. A church is God here with us right now. God is here with us. I will take that as not a coincidence. (laughs) That the wind of the Lord is a sign of his spirit. God is here with us. That's why you should be part of a church. That's why you should come to a church. Because in the church, God is here. He is among us. There's no other reason to commit to this community or any community of believers except that God is among us. Sometimes people come out of family obligation or they come out of a cherished tradition, out of guilt, or or they come to see friends. come for all kinds of reasons. This is the center of the reason. This is the primary reason. This is the reason about which, if this isn't the reason, there's no other good reason. Any secondary reason has to derive its sense and its logic and its wisdom from this reason. We should be part of our church because God is among us. He watches over us. He watches over his gathered people as he did with the seven churches in Revelation, walking among the lampstands. He comes to wash us with his word and renew us with his spirit. Every time we gather, that's his heart. The church is the foretaste and the promise of the coming truth that that one day we will see him face to face. But now we see him by faith, but he is here. The church is the foretaste and the promise coming true already of his longing that he, he, he prophesies about in Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne 
saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. The church is that coming true already in spirit, but will come true in every way at the consummation of creation. The dwelling place of God is with us. Last year, I wrote you all a note about coming on time. And and I I really struggled with this note because I didn't want to seem petty and irritate you. I didn't want to seem demanding and condemn you. It was hard to find the right way to explain. And for a few of you, you you did struggle with it. You were hurt. And it hurt me, not like I'm hurt by your hurt. I was just sad because I love you guys and I didn't want to hurt anybody with it. And I struggled to figure out what what was really even going on in my heart because I can have fleshly reasons for wanting people to to come to church or to be on time. I can, I can be about, you know, we've talked about this before, counting the mighty men, which is deplorable to God. But I, at the same time, knowing that that's in my heart, I, I felt this other sense of, but this is right that we should gather together and we should care about gathering together. And of course, there's all kinds of good reasons and struggles, right? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to go into that letter in depth right now, but I'm trying to say that what was going into my heart in the best way was this idea. The reason why we should come is because God is here. The living God, he wants us to be together. He, he is what we need, and he is what we should come for. He is why we should sing. Even if the songs aren't our favorite, even if they're not done as well as they might be in some other gathering places. <laughs> Recently, someone said to me about my worship leading, something like, you don't have the full set. Like they may, it's not as, you know, it's not like Hillsong where you have the, the big thing, you know? And they were trying to be kind but explain it's. And I was okay with that. I, I don't, we don't have the passion band. I'm not Matt Redman. But that doesn't matter. Like deep down, we all know this. The Lord's here, He, he loves to fellowship with us in song. That's why we study his word. We're we're not here to learn a textbook on God so that we can be seminary professors. There are professors at dead seminaries who, who know more about the Bible than me or any of us, but they're blind and dead to the truth that he is living and among his people. If we come here as born-again children of God and we take this to heart and we really expect him to meet us and we really understand that he longs for us and we pray for him to meet us, then I think we're so less likely to miss what he has for us. And we're going to treat our gathering, our community, our family, not as a light thing, but as the thing that she really is. His wife. Take a second to turn and look at each other. Look around. It's okay. Do it. Look around. You just looked at the wife of Jesus Christ. It's his bride. Shouldn't we treat her as precious? 
And if she is his wife, if she is the wife of the greatest husband in the universe who loved his wife so much that he bled and died for her, then follow me here. Shouldn't we expect him to meet us when we gather as he commands us? Shouldn't we expect him to be so gracious and kind and gentle, to condescend, to come and gently nourish and encourage us? Isn't that what we should expect from the best husband in the universe? Which, which brings me to my, my, my last point here, how we should expect him to meet us that Paul is explaining to us through this, this discourse today. Verse 26, let all things be done for building up. How should we expect the husband to come and minister to his bride? Let all things, verse 26, let all things be done for building up. All things. Paul's main emphasis for a church that's obsessed with tongues is build each other up. That's the last part of this phrase. Let all things be done for building up. But for a church like ours, that are far, far from the type of charismatic chaos that we saw in Corinth, perhaps the emphasis for us right now should be more on the phrase, let all things be done. Let all things be done. And we get the building up part. We've been talking about that for weeks. And Paul says, let all things be done. At the end of the chapter, he'll say, do not forbid speaking in tongues. Seek to prophesy. And he means, of course, interpretation. And in this chapter, Paul mentions more of the all things that God wants to work in the gathered meeting. He mentions prophecy. He mentions a revelation, which is probably very connected to prophecy. It's a, it's a revealing of what is transmitted to the person. He mentions knowledge. It's biblical knowledge, spiritual knowledge, and that outbears into someone personally. He mentions teaching. It's what I do week in, week out. He, he mentions, I, I'm not always me, but people, we always bring the word. He mentions songs that people bring. It's so great to have Nika here this morning because one of my favorite moments in church in the last decade was the morning that Nika came down to Tuscarora and said, I have a song. Do you, do, some of you may not remember that, but this sweet daughter of God all by herself just came to the microphone and she said, I want to sing to the church. And she sang a psalm from God's word to us. It was amazing. She says, you might have a song. You have a lesson. I believe Deb Coleman, I don't know if Deb is here this morning or not. Is Deb here? Jay was here. Deb is, it's sometimes, you know, she's one who brings a lesson. I think Nathan brought a lesson to us this morning. A praise. We see that Paul says, you bring praises through tongues interpreted. Thanksgivings and prayers. We see that in 1 Corinthians 11, that people are praying before the church like Kim did this morning for us. And there's, of course, in Paul's discourse here, a significant emphasis on prophecy. And I don't know all the reasons why. I think part of it might have to do with the fact that the scriptures were not fully written and that there was much more going on and needed in terms of prophetic ministry before the Bible was consolidated. But that gift has not left. There's no reason why we should believe that when Paul says the the prophecy will go when the perfect comes, when we see Jesus face to face. And so there's a significant emphasis on this gift called prophecy. And we've talked about this before, but just briefly, I, I feel like it would be not serving you if I didn't briefly mention that gift. Wayne Grudem defines prophecy simply as, quote, telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. A teaching or a lesson is mulled over, it's prepared. But this is something that God has spontaneously brought to mind, often in the moment, in a burden. It just, I believe God would have me share this. 
more carefully, prophecy is, he says, the ability to receive and proclaim a message from God that may be spontaneously given for the strengthening, the encouragement, and the consolation of others. In his love for a church, a person, in his love for a church, God puts into a person a thought, an idea, a picture on their heart or their mind for someone else, and you share it. This is what Peter said in Acts 2 when he quoted Joel saying, In the last days I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and all will testify. All will prophesy, he says. And and we don't, he doesn't explain specifically what it's going to be. He says it will strengthen, which can mean exhortation. It can even bring, it can even bring a sense of loving correction, encouragement, exhortation, consolation, comfort. Now, there are always qualifications we want to make when we talk about this kind of thing. You guys are well-versed in, most of you are well-versed in this, but just to make sure we understand, this is not scripture being written. This is not the office of apostle establishing God's unassailable, authentic, authoritative word. It's not infallible or authoritative. That's why Paul says in this chapter, prophecy must be weighed by others. And why he says to the Thessalonians, it, it needs to be evaluated. Keep the good, throw away the bad, he says in 1 Thessalonians 5.20. He says the church needs to hear and weigh it, but they need to hear it. He says in 1 Corinthians 13, we, we do these kinds of things partially, in part, dimly in a mirror. Only God's written word is authoritative, and that's why we stay away from words like, thus says the Lord. It's better to say, I think God may have laid this on my heart for us, or I believe the Lord might say to us, Those are humble ways to admit at the front end that we're fallible. We see in part. But God gives these gifts to us. Wisdom. Knowledge. Teaching. He brings those to bear on a Sunday morning like today through you like he did this morning. And like we saw before, songs, prayers, blessings, thanksgiving, praises, One of my favorite verses about this is in Psalm 40. I've not hidden your righteousness. I've not hidden it. Right? It's not like tongues hidden. He says, I've not hidden it within my heart. I have spoken like Robert did today. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation, from the gathered people of God. I haven't hidden what you've done for me. I've told them. There's so many psalms like that that tell us. But, and, and I, and I, I want to say real quick, I, I'm sorry I didn't get it to you this week. I have f- finished looking through what I need to look through with, with a spiritual test, and, and I'm going to send that out today to you. And it has a lot of, I think, well-written definitions for these things. People can have slightly different, ex- essent- slightly different understandings of what these various gifts are. But if the, the more you know scripture and the heart of the people who write, the more you can tell when someone's coming close and when someone's on point. And I, I, but I don't want to miss the forest for the trees of these things, knowledge and teaching and lesson and prophecy. But Paul's great point here is not to put together a technical manual on spiritual gifts or to parse out exactly how God will speak like when wisdom turns into knowledge and it's, but it's not yet prophecy or how prophecy is different than a revelation or, or teaching. But his main point is not to explain all that perfectly. His main point is to say, God is among you and he wants to speak through you. Through you. 
and not just me. Gordon Fee writes, By and large, the history of the church points to the fact that in worship we do not trust the diversity of the body. Edification must be the rule, and that carries with it orderliness so that all may learn and all be encouraged. But it is no great credit to the historical church that in opting for order, it is also opting for a silencing of the many. Somehow the picture we see in 1 Corinthians 14 can seem so far removed from the picture we can see historically in churches. That's what Gordon is saying. So when you come together, someone brings a song, someone brings a lesson, someone brings a prophecy, someone brings a word of wisdom, someone brings a praise. Let all things be done for building up. Someone might even bring a tongue if it can be interpreted. And, and for many of us, either because we've never experienced that, it, it freaks us out, or because we have and we've seen it for ab- abused, it freaks us out. But if we're a church that's going to honor the word of God, we need to honor this word of God. And so this is what the ministry mic is for. It's why we take time each week to hear from you. It's why we, we, you know, we've, we've changed it from prophecy mic to ministry mic to recognize there's a, there's a broader panoply of gifts at work here. But again, the forest and not the trees is that God uses you to speak to you and, and not just me. And, and so I just want to appeal to you again. Our, our, come with that mindset. God is here among us. He wants to nourish you. He wants to meet you. Don't come not expecting to meet with him or you're less likely to meet with him in your experience. Come expecting to meet with him, longing to meet with him, asking for him to meet with you. And that he might even use you, give you strength, to take a step of faith as he commands us to be zealous for spiritual gifts so that we might love one another. It was so wonderful to see so many of you here this morning and then to watch and witness this ministry from you to you. I was just in my heart just smiling, thinking to myself, they're doing it. (laughs) God, they're doing what what you've said. I mean, we're not like the greatest church on earth. I'm not the greatest pastor on earth. But it was just beautiful to see the Lord being kind to bring out these gifts from one to another. And and I saw through the consistency of the words that were brought, well, God is saying something. He's saying, he's kind of saying one thing through Rob's song and what Nathan shared and what Kim was burdened. I want to encourage you. Many of you are very frightened about what's coming upon you. And I want to encourage you. I'm here to help you. And he brought Nika Nika. And we got to talk about making words unintelligible intelligible and encourage them. I didn't know they were coming today. God does that so many Sundays. They walk away saying, he choreographed a bunch of stuff I didn't plan because he's here. He's among us. He really is and he loves us. So when we come on Sunday, be ready to be met by God. Ask him to help you be ready to be met by him and ask him to help you be ready to be used if he would to meet someone else. 
And thank you for doing it. Thank you for having faith to walk this out. We want to be careful, orderly. We'll talk about that next week. But we want to do it. We want to meet each other in the gifts that he's given us to show himself to one another. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being a husband who doesn't leave his bride. Thank you for being a husband who's better than any husband we could imagine, who loves his wife faithfully. He loves her when she looks pretty. He loves her when she looks awful. He loves her when when she pleases him. He loves her when she displeases him. He provides for her. He nourishes her. He protects her. You are the greatest husband there could be. You're the husband about which all husbands should seek to emulate. If you laid down your life for us and tasted hell for us and took our judgment for us, how much more will you be faithful now that you've reconciled us? We thank you, God. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.